Welcome to the FASD Success Show, the only podcast where you can get real-world information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This show will help you create calm in the chaos, have hope for the future, and more importantly, save your sanity so you don't lose your flippin' mind. Now, here's your host, caregiver turned world FASD educator, Jeff Noble. Hey everybody, welcome to episode number 13 of the FASD Success Show. I am your host, Jeff Noble. Thanks again for being here. I really appreciate you listening to the show. It has definitely been picking up steam in terms of uh, listeners and reach. I've been getting emails from all over the place, so thank you very much. I'm glad you are enjoying it. Well, if you're listening to this... It is a very special time. We're actually, at the time of recording this, we are going into week two of the quarantine, at least in my house. I know in every countries it's different, so it might be a different day for you. But nonetheless, this is a different time for all of us. If you're listening to this, you know you've survived this long, so that is excellent to hear. But what an amazing worldwide event. Uh, We're spending time indoors, social distancing, uh, because we want to make sure that we could uh, beat this thing and get uh, life back to our normal, you know, as FASD caregivers and frontline workers as soon as possible. But I didn't want to make this show about, uh, you know, COVID-19 because that is all you're hearing. And if you are, uh, here's a tip, here's what I found, if you are watching the news, please stop. What an anxiety-inducing medium to be watching right now. Uh, Now, I'm not claiming to be perfect, but I was watching a lot of news at the start, and I found my anxiety going up. And so I decided to totally limit it to at 6 p.m. each day. I watch for five minutes because that's when the biggest stories and, you know, people letting us know what's going on in your country. Other than that, I do my best to keep away from it. And so I wanted to make this show business as usual because I wanted this to be a little bit of an escape because you are in the house with your kids Nobody could go anywhere. And from what I'm hearing and what I'm reading is that just like the FASD spectrum, you know, families are having are having a tough time all the way to a really successful time uh, with this. You know, people are having a tough time because the change in schedule and routine that is different in the transitioning. It's all out of whack for everyone, not to mention you, but your kids as well, to having individuals having their best week, like their families literally having the best week of their lives because the pressure of being somewhere on time, being here, therapy, school, uh, the expectations of school. And so that's all been relaxed. And so is the individuals. So and, and everywhere in between. So if you're listening and you're surviving, keep hanging in there. You are doing a wonderful job. So what I wanted to do with today's episode, actually, is I wanted to just bring an excellent story. You know, the FASD Success Show is designed to share success not only for caregivers, but individuals on the spectrum as well, so we can all be successful, we can all do well. And I wanted to make this episode a story. I wanted to share one of the most amazing stories of an individual with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I wanted you to hear the holy cow moments that I've had listening to this story during the interview. 
and it it's going to blow you away and it's going to leave you with so much hope because the individual that we are interviewing today as I'm sure you're well aware of is RJ Formanek and he is an adult on the spectrum in fact he did not even receive his diagnosis until he was in his late 40s so if you can imagine that that is that is unbelievable is what that is. And his journey is amazing. Now, the cool thing is, is we are friends. We have been friends for a long time. We both run Facebook groups, which leads me to uh, my first plug. If you are having a, a tough time during this time and you need some extra support and you are not in our Facebook group yet, may I suggest going to facebook.com slash group slash FASD forever. I mean, we have almost uh, 5,400 caregivers, frontline workers, uh, folks in there who are sharing their tips and sharing their struggles. So this time, at this time, we need community uh, more than ever. So RJ and I uh, both run Facebook groups, which he's going to explain because it is different than my group. And our groups are both, um, you know, symbiotic. They work really well together. But he does more than run a group. He's been through a lot. You know, I first met RJ on um, on Facebook. Actually, uh, he was he commented on my page, and then we messaged each other, and uh, you know, kind of took up a friendship. But I'll leave that for the actual interview itself. There's so many aha, so many wow moments, and then he drops these one liners that will make you pause. It'll make you pause. You know. It'll make you pause and just drink in what he's saying. He is a knowledgeable guy. I'm again. He didn't get a diagnosis through uh, until his uh, 40s. So the story before the story, you know, of him getting a diagnosis and the story after is amazing. And then he gives some great insight uh, on if you're an individual on the spectrum and you're listening to this because you want to hear an adult and what they have to say and what they've been through. He gives some great advice, and also to the caregivers, he gives some amazing advice as well. We've been working together for a long time, speaking at conferences. Uh, he's just a cool dude, and he started, literally, he's, he's one of the folks who started a worldwide movement when it comes to a symbol with the red shoes and recognizing FASD. And uh, this is a special interview because before we weren't allowed outside, uh, joking, not joking, practice social distancing. Before all of this happened, I was in Thunder Bay, which happens to be his hometown. I was there to um, keynote a conference. So I wanted to do the first face-to-face interview, and it's excellent. It's a lot easier when you're in front of the person. So we had a good one. So before, you know, we go to the interview, we got to introduce who we're talking to. And today, our guest, his name is RJ Formanek. And having not received an FASD diagnosis until his late 40s, RJ Formanek's experience with both the foster and legal systems gives him an insight that he shares freely. And he sure does. His experience in the mental health system and eventual diagnosis Paired with his FASD certificate training also gives him a dual perspective and critical understanding of how to deal with FASD day-to-day and over the lifespan. Writing, speaking, and co-administrating the Facebook group Flying with Broken Wings, RJ works to support and educate while his work with Red Shoes Rocks, Stop FASD, helps gain public awareness as well. Let's go to the interview. Enjoy the interview. You're awesome. 
All right, everybody, we are here. I am in Thunder Bay. This is special interview because it is the first face-to-face interview I have done for the podcast, and I'm super excited because we are going to hear an awesome story, an adventure of a, of a hope and inspiration with my man, RJ Formanuk. RJ, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Well, it's a thrill to be here, Jeff, and uh, let's have some fun with this. Excellent. Okay. I I like to talk about history just a little bit, but I want to get more into the present. Uh, but I always find people's stories uh, fascinating, except for individuals on the spectrum. And as I understand it, you did not receive a diagnosis until you were how old? Uh, 47. 47 years old. Uh, now, you look great, by the way. If you can't see it, I'm going to post a picture and put it on the blog because he looks fantastic. Sharpest dressed man that I've ever seen. You've done some incredible things, and we're going to get into that, but I want to take it back to the beginning. What was growing up like in terms of uh, your living situation, and when did you first maybe realize something was different in, in terms of in relation to your peers? Well... I guess my story starts when I was born. Um, I was given up by my mother right there at birth, but my grandmother took me. So I was raised by her for three years, ended up back with my mother again. And it was a long sort of um, learning process for my mother to learn about parenting. And um, she practiced on us kids a little bit, but uh, she too had her own challenges. So I... uh, Grew up in a very dysfunctional home, you could say, from that point on. But uh, at about the age of 10, I went back to my grandparents. But by that point, I had changed so much because of the experience I had with my mother. Now, my mother had addictions issues and everything that went with that. So there was a whole lot of stuff that went on. Went back to my grandparents, but I only lasted there about three years because I... was totally off the wall almost in some ways. At the age of uh, 14, I went into children's aid, society care. And that next year, I went through 13 placements in 12 months. So um, it was a very um, tumultuous, yes, a very tumultuous upbringing. Oh, I remember hearing you speak because, you know, we crisscross the country together. This hotel room might as well be in Vancouver or on the East Coast. You know, we've been doing this. Um, You called yourself a garbage bag kid. And I thought that was interesting. And hopefully, can you explain what you meant by that while you were in foster care? Well, that to, to this day is one of the things that I do remember the most about the experience was... Every time, and this started from when I had to leave my grandparents' place, every time I moved, all of my possessions were put into one of those green garbage bags. And that's sort of a really kind of a soul-crushing experience to realize that all of your worth is in a garbage bag. And you sort of feel like you identify with that. So uh, that's why I call myself a garbage bag kid. So what happened? You uh, you wouldn't unpack your stuff? Would you just be waiting to get the boot again uh, since you went through so many different placements? Was it just your psyche? Uh, is, is that why? Uh, at first, I really thought that things would change. But then as I kept failing at these placements and um, getting kicked out again and again and again, it sort of dawned on me that 
Yeah, it was me, definitely. But it was also the people. Like, we weren't necessarily a good fit. So I think they were just trying to put me anywhere at that point, And it just didn't work out because the people didn't have the knowledge about how to deal with me. Yes, that's true. That's why a lot of placements break down. No training on FASD. And I, you know, not trying to date you, but this is back in the day, right? Where there wasn't understanding and, and there still isn't, but there it's more to, to, to this day. And you went through placement, placement to place. Did you see yourself different? Did you look at other peers like, or were you, were you just in such a state of flux that you were just winging it? Or, you know, like, was there a moment where you said, Hey, maybe something's going on? Ooh, that's a tough question, because I know from the time I was about six or seven, I knew that I didn't relate to other kids the way other kids related to each other. I didn't have the same type of friendships or anything like that. So I knew that right from then. And that sort of developed like an independent type attitude. But yeah, I was always, you know... Um, the last one to be asked to be on the team or anything like that. Not extremely popular. What I did to take care of that, though, is I became class clown. Now, that sort of worked two ways. Number one, if I didn't really understand what was going on, I would make a very loud joke. So that would break the tension. It would also kind of ruin the moment for the teacher. But that way, and we've talked about this before, People didn't know I wasn't getting it. They thought I was just snotty. So it was better to look bad than to look like I wasn't getting it. Uh, that is true. So, you know, individuals on the spectrum might not be the ones who are displaying their symptoms with the rage and the meltdowns and the tantrums and, or the ones that uh, shut down, but also like the class clown as, as well, right? Because you'd rather seem uh, funny than stupid. Right. Okay. Uh, that's fair. Now, what was school uh, like for you in terms? Uh, did you graduate? Uh, how was your school experience? I really, really loved school up until grade nine. Um, I did very well in English, uh, geography, and things like that. I didn't quite do as well in math and things like that. So, um, being in a smaller school for that many years, knowing everyone around me, knowing where all the rooms are, and it's just every year is the same, to suddenly be thrust into a much larger school where I didn't know anybody, I didn't know the rooms or anything like that. Um, I made it almost all the way through my uh, grade nine year, but then spring hit, and I just couldn't do it anymore, and I ended up getting thrown out, and that was the end of my formal education for quite a few years. If I'm remembering correctly, this led to, or not led to, but this was a part of, you became emancipated, right? Was it before school, during school? Because, the, like, what was the situation that uh, led up to that? Well, that goes back to the um, Children's Aid Society. Once I had gone through that number of homes, they had run out of places to put me. Plain and simple. I come from a very small town. It was less than 10,000 people at a time. So if you go through 13 fosters in that amount of time, there's nobody left. So they had no other option, according to, to them at the time, other than to emancipate me at the age of 15. This was the same time I quit school. I quit school because I was emancipated and I could legally make that decision. 
The problem with being emancipated, of course, is my first big follow-up, and I would end up in adult court and adult jail. In fact, what ended up happening was I got into a little bit of trouble, not anything big, but was ended up being put in an adult group home at the age of 15. And that was a very formulative time in my life, and actually... It turned out much better than I really would have thought at first. I mean, they got beat up quite a few times at night and things. I was the youngest one. We're talking about guys coming out of jail and stuff like that who are 30 years old, and I'm 15, and I'm living with them in a ward. So it was pretty scary. And that's when you met one of your first mentors, teachers, guardians. Uh, Tell us that story. And how would you describe her? Was she a guardian mentor? Like if if you were to introduce her to people, how would you introduce her? (laughs) This is going to sound weird. If I were a religious person and I know she was, I would say she was an angel more than anything else. Now, this is 1977. The term fetal alcohol syndrome is just newly coined within the last year. So this is brand new stuff. She didn't have any training in it, but she seemed to instinctively understand the things that I needed. Like when I first moved in, I was, I can look back now and realize I was severely traumatized by all of the other placements. When I moved in, no word of a lie, at nine weeks, maybe 12 weeks, maybe up to three months, I hid. I stayed on my bed, and I didn't socialize, and she let me get away with it. Um, the only thing was, you know, you still have to have, you, you know, your bath, your shower, and you still have to have some meals. Other than that, she just let me be. And that was sort of the way she treated me. And nobody had ever done that before, so that gave me time to start thinking about what I wanted and how to go about getting those things. And she supported me very well. In fact, I stayed there for the first three years. At the age of 18, when I um, aged out and all of the funding stopped and everything like that, she let me stay for three more years. That's incredible that you found her, right? I think that's one of the, you know, in Canada, we have this uh, sports network called TSN, and they call it the TSN Turning Point, right? And, And I think that would be one of them. How would she handle your symptoms, you know, aka behaviors? And how did you last there without getting kicked out i mean you certainly were you just a straight and narrow fella or right like uh, so how would she handle you when if you broke the rules or uh you know yes your symptoms clearly were flaring up at that time i remember one time when she walked in and um i just had a huge meltdown in the kitchen The kitchen was a complete shambles. I had dishes and pots and pans everywhere. The table was flipped over, like just a total mess. And she walked in. Her first, of course, was an expression of surprise. But then she just looked at me. And I was like, what, what? You know, what are you going to do about it? Because I was totally keyed up. And she said, just go upstairs and we'll talk about it later. And nobody had ever reacted to an outburst of mine like that. All my other outbursts were met with the back of the hand. You're kicked out. There was always some kind of punishment for me. And I think I was just expressing my frustration. I was doing it wrong. I understand that now. But at the time, I didn't even feel that I was allowed to express frustration because I didn't know how. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And that must have been, you know amazing to have a to not feel like you were in trouble 
like to to have this outburst and you know now we know individuals on the spectrum their cup gets so full and you, without the self-regulation tools just has to get it out right just have to release all that energy and you did that in the person because i'm sure you were expecting like by saying come on bring it on you were you were ready for it and to have someone to meet you with empathy that's that's amazing and that's what we need to do is but it's hard in the moment right if 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 when uh, an individual on the spectrum is doing that where'd you go from here so you're you're obviously with this angel you're you're in a group home so i'm sure you're interacting with other individuals with you know all sorts of things uh where did where did you go from there well you know she had been so incredibly nice to me and allowing me to do all that I, of course, had to thank her by getting into a relationship with her daughter and getting her pregnant. This woman is my son's grandmother. So, um, yeah, we became a lot closer after that. Uh, (laughs) And that's um, one of those strange things. But she still didn't, like, blame me for debauching her daughter or anything like that. Um, Her daughter and I got along, and she, you know... It just sort of kind of happened kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, the next thing you know, I had a son and my son had a grandmother. (laughs) And we all knew each other very well. So did you stay there? Like, so now that you have a kid, um, how old were you when you had a kid is my first question. And did you continue to stay there? I had just turned 18 when he was born. So um, essentially then at that point... I was trying to get part-time jobs to support a child and myself, and that wasn't working out. What ended up happening was my son's mother got a full-time job when she was off maternity, and I ended up being a house husband kind of thing, which with um, this her, her mother, I would look after my son. So I got sort of a lot of training. It became kind of like um, on-the-job training kind of thing, and what helped me was knowing that I had backup, that I had someone who understood. Like, I didn't know what to do when a baby screamed for hours and hours. That's when I learned about walking and going, just taking yourself away from the situation for a little while and what a big difference that can make. So I ended up, like I said, staying with her at that point. But then her daughter and I broke up, as is want to happen, especially with someone who's as reactive as I am. I mean, she was a saint. She put up with me as long as she could. But, there, you know, at that point, I still wasn't very stable. So they moved out. I still stayed there living with the grandmother for another year or so, at which point I went to college. And she gave me the time to decide what I wanted to take. And I went and I took television. And it was something, you know, other people weren't telling me, well, you got to do this, or you should be a lawyer, you should be a doctor, you should be... This was something I chose, and she supported me 100%. In fact, she even gave me my, my first blazer when I left for TV work. So uh, she was a, a, a great support all the way around. And this... So you stumbled, or you chose television, and did you know that it was a talent? Because it ended up being a talent, right? You, uh, you did it for... 20, 20 years, I believe, uh, you know, you could uh, tell that story. Um, so my question is, A, uh, how did you maintain a job that long? And B, what made you successful at it? Oh, this is going to sound bad. Talent. Um, that I've 
even from the time I was the smallest kid, I could pick up a camera and take a picture that people liked. I didn't necessarily know why, but that sort of um, became the the way that I found my way into the work world was I had an ability that was maybe a little bit better than other people, which gave me license to act as a fool sometimes. I became the, you know, the, the angry artist. I'll do anything for that picture and it's got to be just perfectly right. So I was given allowances at work all the time because of the caliber of work I was able to do consistently. Now, um, the good thing about working in television is a lot of it's shift work. And I ended up working a 10 to 7 shift because I don't sleep at night and I get up later. So um, that would give me time to wake up slowly in the morning because I couldn't fall asleep till 4 o'clock the night before. And I worked that shift for years and years. And um, that was very helpful. Like I said, aside from the fact that my talent hid a lot of things. I a lot of people let me get away with stuff I probably shouldn't have. So you your symptoms came off as angry artist almost, compassionate artist because you produce good quality. And what we know is that just like say take major sports stars, the better you are, uh, the more you get away with. So the more talent you have. Right. And I know you were apprehensive to say talent, but you shouldn't because individuals on the spectrum have strengths. Right. Like, and you stumbled into a strength uh, or walked into a strength and you were able to last 20 years, although and people, you know, uh, put up with, accepted, dealt with your symptoms because you were good at what you did. I That's uh, fantastic. Now, during this 20 years, nobody's mentioned FAS no have you been did you try and get help doctors how are you coping like were you was there any drugs alcohol like is this I know we're jumping 20 years so I kind of want to see I kind of I would like my goal is to extract like what that adulthood time was for you well I need to kind of explain this when I worked in television I worked in news and I worked in hard news So I've seen more bodies, more blood, more carnage than the average human being. And that eventually did start to take a toll. So I would, like, back in the 80s and 90s, we didn't necessarily seek help until it was really, really late. And um, I did the same thing. I just sort of ignored it. I walked it off. I I took up drinking for a while and things like that. Um, Drugs, not so much, but it was the drinking after work. And um, in in one particular instance, I covered a really horrific plane crash where um, like over 20 people died, and I knew quite a number of them myself. And it was a local um, story that went national. I ended up at the crash site. To this day, I cannot stand the smell of JP4 jet fuel. That will trigger me because the bodies were all still there. The fire was still burning. Like, we got there when the accident was still fresh. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I ended up, I didn't know who to talk to. Um, I was in a relationship. That went down the tubes. I started drinking heavily. Um, And eventually, I just ended up trying to seek some mental health help. Now, that sort of sent me down a whole road where I got so many diagnoses between, you know, the PTSD, depression, um, 
They tried reactive attachment disorder, um, just about anything. I have what I call alphabet soup behind my name. And, you know, none of these things actually fit 100%. I would be close, so they would say, well, we'll medicate you for this. But the meds weren't necessarily good either. So you're putting me in, into very weird places. So by the time it came time to get an FASD diagnosis, and it was suggested by my very good friend, Deb, I had no faith in any diagnosis. So I dragged out the diagnostic process for about five years. So you are doing the news, you know, you're trying to cope the best you can. You're trying to get help. Help came with a bunch of diagnoses that didn't fit. Same with medications and treatments that didn't fit. And you, because you left the news, right? Because I think there's some interesting story. There's a bridge before you know, Deb says what's up, uh, you know, and suggests this to you. So, yeah. So tell, tell, because it's interesting and I, I've heard it, but I want the folks to hear it because w- you left news and then what did you do? Well, um, eventually things got to the point where I was working for CTV National News and um, one of the satellite stations. And I did that quite happily for about 10 years, almost 10 years. Then I ended up leaving that position. And that was mainly because of attrition and job cuts. So I came up with this bright idea. I was going to freelance in Europe. So I sold everything. Uh, got married to the girl I was dating, and we headed off to Europe and ended up spending a little over, I think, six months there while I bounced around from one television job to another, not really doing anything much, but had a great time. Had to come back to North America and start all over again, so I then moved into um, community broadcasting. I wasn't doing news anymore. I was doing happy events and things like that, so that totally changed that. However, um, My wife and I did break up, and when that happened, my whole world crashed down. I hadn't realized how much I depended on this one person to be there, to be my support, my own personal support. And when that broke down, I lost my mind. I quit television, and I trained as a long-haul truck driver. And then I spent the next almost two years just driving around by myself, not talking to anybody, until I was involved in an industrial accident that broke my spine. So, I'm stuck with a broken spine. I have a friend of mine who says, you know, you're getting worse because I'm getting more depressed. And she thinks I'm getting suicidal and she can see this happening. And she says, why don't you look at FAS, as it was known at the time? Why don't you look into an FASD diagnosis? And I had no other options. At that point, I, anything. I would have done anything kind of thing. So you, you, drug, you dragged it out, drug it out, dragged it out, whatever the, however you say that English stuff. And she mentions FASD. How did you, there was uh, their diagnostic clinics? Like, how did this go about? Uh, how did you get a diagnosis? Well, we were lucky um, in the fact that Thunder Bay has had one of the longest running now diagnostic clinics. There's a woman here um, who works and has been doing this now for years and years. And she had done a lot of kids. But when I came along, she took on the challenge because I was the first adult to be successfully diagnosed in northwestern Ontario. So for her, it was a learning experience because... My school records are archives. 
anything about my past, you had to go and dig out from historical sources. They're no longer, like they're not online and all this. I mean, she did all this incredible stuff. In fact, that's how I found out that I failed sleep time in kindergarten because I just wouldn't lay down like the other kids. So you get testing, right? You do the testing and you're a bit apprehensive because of all the stuff you've been through through your life. And you're now, you know, in your mid 40s um, and they sit you down and they say FAS, right? Or confirm like uh, A, what was that conversation like? And B, how did you feel when you heard those words? It, essentially, I was still looking at it like all of the other diagnoses I'd been given and be like, yeah, okay, whatever. FAS. Um, at that point, you know, I still thought it had something to do with babies because I hadn't really, really checked it out yet. I thought it was just going to be another dead end road. So, yeah, she sat me down. She said, we can confirm that you do have um, at what what at the time in Canada was was called partial fetal alcohol syndrome. I had the majority of the facial features, but I had all of the neurological deficits. So still numb meant nothing and then she looked me square in the eye for about 30 seconds and she said it's not your fault and that just broke me right there because finally there was a reason i could understand why my brain did the things it did my brain didn't just do things to other people it did things to me that i didn't understand so sometimes it was like not that I was my own worst enemy, but I definitely wasn't my best friend. Um, thanks for sharing that. That is awesome. And now you're 47 years old. You have a diagnosis of FASD. Are you swimming? Or is your head spinning? Or, you know, like, what's going on? Did you take some time to digest? Did you research? How, how did you, you know, lean into this uh, diagnosis? Uh, very slowly, um, I started educating myself about what it was. Um, first thing that I, that I started out with Bonnie Buxton's book, Damaged Angels. And I identified so much with the behaviors her daughter Colette had exhibited and the stories rang so true. And um, that got me going. And then I went online. And there I was really, really shocked to see all of the extremely negative um things that were being said at the time i was seeing things like there's no hope they never get better they only reach a certain stage they plateau and nothing gets better and you know even though i didn't have the diagnosis i had been fairly successful in my life i knew that was not true i knew my brain wasn't slowing down so a couple of years of that and the way that i researched was i would have to find three articles that corroborated each other, not two, three, because I wanted to make sure I got it right. Long story short, I was then sponsored to take the um, FASD course at AEI, which is um, in North Bay, the Nishabek Education Authority. Institute. Institute. There we go. I'm, I'm not good with acronyms. And um, there they gave me the actual words to say. Now, up until that point, I had started a, a, a group called Flying with Broken Wings, which you would remember because um, I remember asking if I could post it when I first started in your group. And that helped me so much with language and, you know, 
understanding the stuff that I didn't pick up online because you can't really educate yourself totally online. It's true. Uh, it's true. Um, that's kind of when, kind of when we sort of met because at this time I was posting on Facebook and I was posting the sound bites that I had learned and your right language is so important and we got connected and I remember you messaging me and we we were just chatting and then I remember you uh, giving me suggestions on the sound bites because sometimes individuals on the spectrum would get upset at what I would write because I didn't realize because I don't think through that lens. But I remember you saying, dude, some of these quotes that you're saying are very uh, abstract. And if you read them literally, and I went, oh, yeah, I could see this now. And, you know, you're a big part of it. And I remember before I posted a quote, I would send it to you, right, and say, is this the language? Is this work? And that's how the sound bites, uh, sound bites and sanity savers, which is one of my books you can get on Amazon, not a big deal. But you uh, helped me craft those so it was language inclusive. And I really appreciate that. And we've kind of had a you know we got along great um and you're right and your group now your group so i remember the uh, you said i'm gonna start a group can i post it in your group i said on my page i'm not starting a group rj go ahead and now it is huge so let's let's talk about that let's talk about uh, the group it's a facebook group flying with broken wings describe it talk about it well it's a group where um all of the well, I shouldn't say all. The majority of the admins and moderators are people on the spectrum. Now, we also then have found that we probably have the largest number of members on the spectrum. So we have people on the spectrum. We have caregivers and professionals all talking together, asking questions and getting answers. And we've been able to foster a really, really positive um, type of atmosphere like like you're talking about language, we're very particular about how language is used, especially about us. And um, we developed this just respectful sort of attitude. I have a great team of admins and mods. They are unsung heroes because, you know, I get to come out here and do all this stuff on the road, but somebody's still got to be minding the shop. And we've got like six or seven really incredible people who are just carrying the load sometimes. And it's a community-type effort. We seem to be reaching people. We seem to be reaching people where they are, not where, you know, somebody wants them to be. You know, I could just end the podcast here, mic drop. That's a great thing. Um, meeting people where you are. You're, you're, it is a, an amazing place. And you can go there on Facebook, facebook.com uh, slash groups slash flying with broken wings and i'll also put that up on the blog of course you could you can get that and in the show notes and i and i suggest you join it because frick it's free but he's not done here man so not only did this guy take uh you know it was like a postgraduate uh, course from the Anishinaabek education institute i hear the uh when you went there uh the instructors were second to none uh, and I'm only doing that because I was one of them. Not a big deal. Uh, self-promotion all the way. And um, you then you started the group. You started the, uh, the, you know, the flying with broken wings. But you did not stop there, man, because you started speaking. You know, we, we're, we're crisscrossing the country together. And then you, you with the help of others, and I'm going to get you to explain it, you started or 
founded the I don't know what the word to say it the symbol the you know the rallying point of FASD publicly in that are that is Red Shoes you and other folks and I'll get you to tell the story started Red Shoes Rocks and it is this massive worldwide thing that, that corresponds with uh, you know with FASD day so please my man how did that get started uh share share what the Red Shoes Rocks initiatives is well there's an interesting story as you've already noted I tend to like to dress for occasions and things um as uh, you know one of the elders ha- has explained it shows respect for the people that you're meeting with if you dress for them so i would always do that there's always a fun side of me too that isn't i don't really want to be the stuffed shirt kind of guy so i decided that if i'm going to wear a suit or something i want something that's me something that represents me and I'm a little off the wall. I'm a little bit uh, crazy. So I thought that the red sneakers would really do it. And I really, really liked the red sneakers to begin with. So I was able to meld those into part of a look. And this was personal. This was just me. I, I didn't see it as a symbol for anyone else. One day at a conference, Jody Culp walked up to me and she asked me about my red shoes. Nobody had ever done that before. Now, Jody is an FASD educator. Um, she's also mother of uh, Liz Culp, who is an author about FASD. She has multiple books out. She does, um, Jody does dog training. She, she does all kinds of incredible stuff. This woman is just a dynamo. She makes me tired just hearing what she's up to. <laughs> but um, she just started talking to me about it, and she asked me, why the red shoes? And, you know, People who wear suits have been always the ones in my life that have told me what I can't do. And when you're in trouble, at least when I'm in trouble, my eyes go down. I look down at the ground. So I'm feeling small by somebody in a suit, and I look down, and I see those red shoes, and it's like, no, 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 not this time. That's my symbol to look back up and look them square in the eye. That's what red shoes meant to me. Now, Jody took that, and she saw that there was something about the spirit of FASD, as she said, that that tenacity, that ability to, you know, look down and then look back up and start again. So she took that from there, and and together we came up with this idea. Maybe other people would like it. Now, at the time, autism has the blue puzzle piece. Um, there were all kinds of ribbons for this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, do we want another ribbon? But maybe, maybe the red shoes, because we're active. Shoes are about moving and not slowing down. So there's, it actually worked really well how it actually seems to fit the FASD paradigm. Okay, you're, you're being humble, let let me repeat that it is now on so September 9th, if you're not aware, is International FASD Day, uh, started by Brian Philcox and his organization, FAS World. So it was Brian and a bunch of folks from all over the world to symbolize ninth month, ninth day, the 99th year, uh, just, you know, so uh, an international awareness a day. And it is uh, it is now International Awareness and Red Shoes Day. Uh, my my Facebook page, my Facebook groups 
are filled and filled with folks wearing their red shoes. People are proud to wear the red shoes. Uh, I think it's fantastic. It's a symbol. I go to a conference now and I'm looking at feet and I it's red shoes. It's red shoes. And so if you don't have a pair, you better flip and get a pair of red shoes. And they don't have to be like you wear Chuck T's. I got Chuck T's. But people wear some flashy stuff, uh, different kind of red shoes. And it's amazing. Now, you know what? It's amazing to me. And the antithesis of this uh, was last year's September 9th. Uh, when all the photos were coming and then I saw a photo of Niagara Falls and they turned it red for FASD day. I, my breath almost went because my friend that is the wonder of the world. It is a, such a massive symbol. How did you feel when you saw that? I think I actually had a tear in my eye. It was like really humbling and really huge. But that also came on the news that Toronto City Hall had gone red, their sign. And that day in Ottawa, they raised a red shoes flag on Parliament Hill. So 2019 FASD Day was huge for red shoes. We're reaching um, 15, 20 million people and, you know, every year we come up with a, a, a new idea to get word out there. We involve all the people on the spectrum that are willing to talk and give them a voice. So this is a huge group effort. We fly together. Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah, you do. It's, it's, it's really, is, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing and I'm on board and everybody should be on board because it's a fantastic symbol and we look pretty fly doing it, right? So long, we're out of the club. And now this is the club and everyone's allowed to be. So you're including everybody, too. You're not excluding. So you're not saying, hey, you know, now we're being recognized. And so shame on you. You guys are saying, come on, grab your shoes. Everybody get on board. And I and I and I, I love that. Now, uh, I want to still we're do, we're doing great for time, but I, I want to pick your brain about. Because you're not only an individual on the spectrum, an advocate, you know your shit, man. So um, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because there's going to be parents. The The biggest thing I hear is that there's um, about they worry about the future for their kids, right? You are clearly an adult, a successful adult, and I'll just say it, right? And But there's a lot that goes into RJ, you know, there's a lot that goes behind the scenes. So I, I want to talk about a little bit about interdependence a little bit. And then I'm going to ask you some straight up FASD questions. OK, uh, about, you know, your, your how would you handle certain certain situations about behaviors and such like that? Some insight because you're the real expert. I say I'm an insider. Right. And you're the expert. So I would be like the sports analyst on television and you would be the athlete playing the game. You're the expert, right? So I'm going to ask you about that. Uh, but let's talk because I push interdependence, interdependence, and that it goes, it flies against the narrative because when I'm hearing from parents, it's I want them to be independent, 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 and that means doing things on your own. And we know because of executive functioning de deficits, that might not be the best course of action for individuals on the spectrum. So I, if you don't mind explaining, um, hey, 
first you have to accept interdependence. When did you do that? And, and what does that look like for you to maintain a stable house, a stable placement, which we know is the number one success factor? I don't know if I can pinpoint an exact time because I still believe in the old paradigm that I had to do it on my own. And sometimes that still does rear its ugly head. But um, I was uh, talking at a conference this last week, and the way I described it was the tip of the spear. I only represent the tip of the spear, but I have a whole team behind me. I have, you know, one of my best friends. She drives me around to stores because I have such anxiety about catching public transit that I can't do it. So she drives me, and that way I can get my shopping and everything done. At home, I've had the same roommate for 22 years, and that's my son. (laughs) We moved in. He had just broken up with his girlfriend. I had just ended my marriage. We were both looking for a place, so we thought we'd move in together for a while. Well, 22 years later, we're still the best roommates ever. He understands, you know, I might be blowing up in one room, but he also knows 15 seconds later, I'm going to be completely calm. So he doesn't stress these things. He doesn't like have illusions about me. He's known me since the day he was born. So I can't pull anything by him and I don't have to try. How does he help though? Because uh, what does he do to on your team to help you maintain uh, like uh, housing? Well, at this point in time, um, he pays the rent. I pay him the money, but he actually is, you know, trying. He's the one who remembers that on the first it has to be in. Um, things like that. Any of the major bill paying that has to be done cyclically, he is better at it than I am. So I'm good at doing things in the moment, but remembering stuff that has to be done every week or something, that's a little different. So what's how is your mindset? Because I want, because there's the folks listen on the spectrum listen to this podcast and parents what was is your mindset is it how does it become from well that makes me less than to have my son to manage these things for me when the status quo is i need to be able to take care of them myself to be a grown adult i actually had this conversation with him one time and i declared him the adult in the house he is much better at adulting than i will ever be i mean I can go up on stage and sound like a successful adult and I can write about it. But when push comes to shove, I, you know, have these neurological challenges that do make it difficult. I don't necessarily say um, notice when food has gone off, things like that, because I just don't think about it. And I found out that you can eat a lot of old food and not die (laughs) But luckily, I have my son there who can like say, no, that is, no, don't even try that one. So he's good for things like that. Um, He's definitely the adult in the room. And ever since he was a kid, he's always had, and this is from his mother, I think, this sort of staid strength that I don't have. I'm off the wall. I'm bouncing like a rubber ball, but he's steady. So he steadies me. That's a that's a that's a great answer, and I 
And I'm hammering on this point because interdependence is the way, functional dependence uh, is is the way to go because you clearly have some strengths, clearly. Like people are hearing it. They can hear how articulate you are. You go on stage, you, you're sharp, you know, you're a sharp-dressed man. So people, if they didn't know, they they wouldn't tell. They just, they couldn't tell. And I think that's part of it is the appearance of competence is greater than the ability to function. Would you agree with that? Presumption of competence, that can be a real problem. But this is something that I use. Yes, exactly. You you nailed that one right on the head. It's a challenge that we do have. We talk well, a lot of us. We sound like we understand. Sometimes we may be talking total BS and we'll sound like we really know what we're talking about because we believe it. But, yeah, that might not quite be the actual truth. So, you know, having that reality check is a really good thing. Now, I want to talk about the appearance of success. You uh, appear successful. If I talk to anybody, you're, you're a success. Now, your income, and uh, there's a point that I want to bring up here, is uh, do you make money? How do you make money? How does that work? Because there's a point I want to uh, drive home here. Well, my living is um, actually I'm on uh, disability because of my brain. Anything else that I do above that is um, not how I make a living. So um, that way I'm able to be affordable too because I don't make a living at this. I just do and go to a, to uh, conferences and things that really sound like where I can make a difference. I don't have to be constantly fighting for that next job and I can take the time and I can write the thing that works, whether it's uh, something like the monster under the bed, which is what I, I, how I talked about my diagnosis. Before you have that, it's like when you're a little kid and the light goes out and you know there's a monster under the bed. You know he's there. But what happens when you name that monster is he loses all of his power. And that's what the diagnosis gave me. No longer was I being hit from out, you know, directions, not expecting it. I now knew what was going on and I named that monster. You know, because if we looked from the outside, um, it's a very different view from the inside. Now, if I just presented, here's RJ, here's an individual on the spectrum who has, who gets social security, ODSP, AISH, whatever you call it, and where, wherever you're from. So you don't have a formal job. You live with your uh, uh, son who takes care of the bills, and you have a friend that drives you around because you can't take uh, public transit. And so if I present it that way, you know, People will say, well, that's not very successful. But then I turn around and say, but listen, here's a man who travels all over the country who has one of the biggest FASD uh, groups on the planet who supports and coaches and helps uh, people from all over the world and started this uh, Red Shoes movement, which is at the Capitol building, and which is at uh, you know Niagara Falls. Then that is successful. And so what I'm, if you're listening to me, it's about redefining success. 
And if I define success as RJ having a high paying job, uh, uh, taking care of everything of, for himself, you know, uh, managing all his bills, doing all this, then that's a different lens of success. And if we're looking through the lens of what he is doing and like what he said, it, it not what he can't do, this is where FASD success happens. Because in my eyes, man, you are one successful dude. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just living my life. And, you know, uh, since I got the diagnosis, I'm able to live my larger life. I'm no longer hiding because I don't know what's wrong with me. You know there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not damaged. I was hurt, but I healed and I'm healing now. So there's a huge difference there. And attitude is a lot about it is, um, I don't feel lesser than the next person. I don't at all because being neurotypical might be fine for some people, but the neurodiversity, the flavor I have, I like me. I like my life. This is the happiest I've ever been. And that to me is success, is being happy. Yeah, man. I I agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. And just to go back uh, before I get, I have a couple more questions. Uh, just to go back on the uh, the appearance of competence. Uh, it I am in the FASD arena all day, every day. And I even forget like I forget RJ has some neurological differences. I got, I'll tell you a quick story. So I think it was, was it September 9th where we, we were in, we were in Sioux Lookout. We're in Sioux Lookout and we're at the same hotel as we often are. And RJ said, I want to do a live in my group. And uh, he's like, do you want to do it with me? And, and I, then I, of course, the juices get going and I get excited and I'm like, heck yeah, we could do that. And then we could put it in your group. And then we could put it in my group. And then this other uh, lady came that she's going to be on the podcast too, too, as well uh, in the future. And she came and I said, well, we'll do this big thing. And now the wheels of Jeffy start turning right where start turning and then i'm like oh my gosh we need better lighting so what i did is i ran to my other ho my hotel room and i'm unplugging all of the lights because there's not you know major lighting in 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 the the rooms in the hotel room and i'm running down the hall and i have these lamps in my hand and people are looking at me weird and as i'm running by and so i'm getting all the lights set up but i'm not i haven't stopped talking this whole time now rj is trying to to launch the live he's on his ipad and it's not working for some reason and i have i did not stop talking and now i'm trying to offer suggestions rj did you do this did you do this have you tried this have you tried this did you do this did you do that and i realized i stopped and i looked at his face and he told me without telling me to shut the f up and then I stopped in my tracks and I said, oh, my gosh, I'm overwhelming this man. Um, and I didn't even realize it. But I should know because of FASD. So basically what training did was like, oh, uh oh, and I just zipped it. And because he did a very good job because, he, you know, he could have you know verbally told me to where to go but i could see it so what i'm saying is sometimes even i forget looking at you and hanging out with you and when we talk and stuff so it's very important with that competence uh that we still uh honor the disability in light of the appearance of competence i, I hope i'm saying that correct um yeah what do you feel about that I like challenges, but yeah, there are there is a limit. And usually if you know someone well 
who's on the spectrum, you can see the signs. So um, even if I don't realize it, like someone who's used to seeing me might realize that I'm starting to slip because of things like that. So, yeah, that can be a real problem. And, and like you said, that was just, you know, two guys talking. We were going to do something, the project. We were excited and things were going. But at one point, your train left the station at 60 miles an hour and mine was still spinning its wheels just trying to get going. But eventually we caught up. Uh, one of the things that I've had to learn is patience. Patience with myself. And that has taught me patience with other people too. Because um, you can't experience my brain. I can't experience yours. We only sort of have visions of how we think the other one works. And I mean, people people make mistakes. Things happen. So I don't sweat it too much. But if it had gone on much longer like that, yeah, I would have said something definitely for sure. It's very true. Now I want to talk about specifically about maybe your uh, symptoms and how you manage those uh, symptoms. Because one of the things is hard for some individuals on the spectrum is coming up with these coping skills, with these self-regulation strategies. Uh, I mean, because we were talking about it earlier, FASD is a neurodevelopmental disability. Neuro means brain, developmental means through the lifespan. So you have great housing and great support, but that doesn't mean your brain is fixed. So you're you're still going to have some of these challenges, right? So uh, what are some of your day-to-day uh, symptoms that you've had to come up with, uh, you know, strategies uh, for? Well, yes. Um, dealing with, um, I have short-term and working memory deficits, which can be really problematic. Uh, along with that comes... Um, sort of a scatterbrain that goes with that kind of thing sometimes. So I can easily become so emotionally overwhelmed that I literally don't know what to do. So one thing that I've learned, and this helps me a lot, is like whenever I go someplace new, I know have to know where all the doors are. Because for me, I've always been a runner, and I've always just taken off on my own. And that's what Sometimes I just need to do, I need to extricate myself, go for a walk, you know, have a coffee. Maybe it'd only be like a walk around the block real quick and get back to it. But I need that time so I can process because my processing is a little bit on the slower side compared to a lot of other people. One thing I would mention is we had talked a long time before we met and so, you know, you're typing and we're vibing. And then I was so excited to meet you as the instructor, but also, you know, to meet you because you were taking the course. And then I remember meeting you and I thought, oh, my God, I did something because there was I expected a way different reaction than I got. I got you know, what I felt was like stone cold, no reaction. Like we, you know, you meet someone and I'm a jovial guy and I'm a hugger and I was like hugging an ice cube and I'm like, uh oh, did I come off too strong? Like, um, and it wasn't until you told me about having to literally teach yourself to smile. Like, explain that if you could. Well, I think that one is known officially as flat effect. Um, I don't naturally have a lot of facial reaction to things. 
uh, through time, I have learned how to use my face. Like I think I spent three weeks smiling in the mirror so I could learn how to smile. But still sometimes in the moment I'll forget, oh, humans smile when they meet each other and things like that. So I can sometimes come across that way. It's not intentional, but sometimes, you know, I forget. I And this is a thing that... I know it's going to sound like whining and complaining. We're always talking about, you know, um, make allowances for people with disabilities. But what we don't seem to realize, the other side of it is, as a person with a disability, I have to make allowances for the neurotypical people in my life because I know they don't understand. And unless I'm able to explain something, they're going to think I'm, you know, bonkers off the wall kind of thing. So... Yeah, there's a whole lot of misunderstanding that easily goes between brains that work differently. And like I was mentioning earlier, it, it, it's like one sort of um, tape transport and another type of tape transport. They both get the same effect in the end, but they're both done differently. Like the difference between a track and cassette for the old days. They both achieve the same effect, but they're both totally different. Very well said. Now, before we go, I got two questions, but I'll just ask them one at a time. I I know for a fact right now that there's parents with their kids, they're listening, right? Because one of the quests that caregivers go on and I hear is, how do I get my son or daughter to accept that they, they have this disability? And B, if there's an individual listening that is on the spectrum that might have been where you are, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, what would be your advice for them? One, help, accepting the help. Two, advice for someone on the spectrum who might not be feeling well. Oh, that is so intensely personal for each person. Um, Number one, accepting help, knowing that you should accept help and being willing to accept that help are huge things because Again, a lot of times we're told, be independent, do things on your own. You don't need the help. If you ask for help, then, you know, you're whining or complaining. So we, um, that one is really difficult. And nobody wants to look damaged or incapable. So getting past that point and saying, you know what? When I travel, I don't set up my own flights. I pay my travel agent, she's part of my team. I don't always pay her because she's part of my team kind of thing, and she gives me deals. But she is good at that. I'm not. So for me, giving someone um, license to do what they do best is smart. If, you know, I'm with Joe and Joe is better at doing this, then Joe should do it, and I'll do what I'm good at. And together, you know, we'll do great things. No, it it doesn't because we're all good at different things. So um, some of my friends are really good at math. I'm not. I'm better with language. They might not be. So if they need a letter written, I'll write a letter. If I need my taxes done, I know who to talk to. And that does not take away from me as a person. In fact, what I found is it actually helps me be the best person I can be because I don't have to fight every fight myself. FASD comes with a whole lot of extra baggage. And again, to go back to my own diagnosis, it's knowing that this isn't something that you've done. And this isn't necessarily, you know, a curse or anything like that. 
It's just that your brain is different. It works differently. And that doesn't make it bad or wrong, but it's not understood. We tend to look at everything through a one-size-fits-all neurological lens. We think all brains work the same, but now we're learning that our brains are diverse. And if we can understand how somebody else's brain works and help them, they do much better. So, being in the position, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder can sound like, you know, a death sentence. But really, it's something that you can live with. It's something that you can work with. Find your strengths. Find, you know, what you're not good at. And offload that to somebody who is good at it. Having a team is going to make a huge difference. And it's not going to be about you. It's going to be about what you deal with. FASD is about people. It's about people dealing with this disability. It's not just the disability. The people are superstars. Dude, you're a superstar. I keep forget we're interviewing. I'm just listening to you. And I'm like, oh, I got to keep asking the questions because I'm like, go on, go on. Uh, okay, last uh, question. It's almost the same. There's caregivers listening to this, fearful for the future, dealing with uh, chaos in the home, uh, where do they start and how can, in the darkest place, they feel hopeful uh, about the future for their kids and their family? Okay, I'm going to look at this through a specific type of circumstance. Aging out at age 18. So many of our kids and so many of our caregivers, um, their relationships often end at that point because they're probably speaking two different languages. Um, as an 18-year-old, you're told, go out, you know, you're an adult, you can do whatever you want and things like that. You might not be fully capable, and your parents may know this, but they can't fight you on it because you're now legally an adult. So what happens is so many times families break up. People don't talk to each other. And I want to implore the parents no matter how terrible they are or whatever, even if you have to get them out of your life, don't shun them. Be there when that call comes. Be the safe spot to land because, you know, we trusted you growing up, If you know, the, the parent. You are, to us, vitally important. And if we lose that, we're lost. This is how so many of us end up in jail and other things is we lose our family supports and we need those. So... To parents, I know it can get really dark and really nasty. And, you know, sometimes you hear the worst things coming out of us. We say the most terrible thing. We know how to hurt people with words many times. Many of the people I've met on the spectrum are really good at that. But also remember that the person talking to you is coming from a place of pain. And they might not even realize that they might not realize that they're sharing their own pain. Even if you can't talk to that person right now, be there. Be there when they call because that's going to be the most important phone call of your life when you get that one. Yeah, no, that's okay. You did awesome. I'll stop with the words now because you gave us all the juice. That, that is amazing. Okay, but seriously, uh, last question. What's, what's, going, what's happening in the future? What are you doing? Um, let's direct people where to go to get more uh, of RJ. Well, um, let's see. I have a few events coming up, um, one of which is going to be the International Conference in Vancouver in April, where I'm hoping to see a whole lot of people. 
we've got 100 people on the spectrum who are registered and going to be showing up. So, of course, I'm going to have to be there. Um, just about anywhere that I can get out and talk to people. I love to talk to people about FASD. I love to meet families. I love to meet people on the spectrum because, you know, we're told how terrible it's going to be. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, the easiest way to get a hold of me is Facebook. Um, the group is, um, F- is is Facebook Groups FASDA, Flying with Broken Wings. I put the A in there because it's easier for computers to do things alphabetically. And also RedShoesRock.com, which is the organization we use internationally. And that is in 64 countries right now. And I don't know how many different languages. And there we celebrate people on the spectrum. It's not a caregiver-run thing. It's about us. And it's about not only the negatives, but the positives. So we really, really um, would encourage people to take a look at either one, Flying with Broken Wings or uh, Red Shoes Rock, if you'd like more information. Dude, this is awesome, man. And I wanted to get you on because you have enriched my life with helping me along my journey uh, of not only understanding the disability, but being able to teach, uh, you know, caregivers and frontline workers with having the understanding and the sensitivity of, you you know, your stance as an individual on the disability. One thing I really learned from you is you're a human being first. You're a human first. And, you know, so when I'm teaching families, it's let's find out who they are as a human being first and how the disability affects them secondly. And so how we can help accommodate that so they could be their best version of their human. And you hit on that, too. So you taught me that and I really appreciate it. Um, I just want you to continue to keep going, folks. If you're listening to this, join the group. Uh, you know, any chance you get to hear RJ, if he's on the docket, if he's on the bill, if he's on the marquee, go see him. Stay connected, RJ. Honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I'm. I, you know, if you never, if you didn't do this and didn't share your story, uh, I would still just be happy with our friendship. But the fact that you do this uh, and enrich so many people's lives, I'm just I'm proud to be your friend and proud to know you and i really appreciate you being on the show well thanks jeff it's always fun to work with you and uh, like you said we do now have a history together and uh, we've been through a lot and i think we're going to be through probably a lot more before we're done yeah, that's absolutely true because I have to go because I have to do a keynote literally in 15 minutes and I have to get dressed. So thanks, dude. Uh, now I got to put some, uh, you know, I got to put these red shoes on and kick some ass. Uh, so thanks again, buddy. I appreciate it. Okay. I mean, we got to admit that was amazing. That man is amazing. And some of that stuff I didn't even know until uh, listening to the actual interview, listening to him uh, speak about it. There are points that I really wanted to drive home, and that's why I kept asking him. And that is the point of interdependence and also the point of success. Interdependence drives success, but it also takes the individual on the spectrum to buy in 
to interdependence being successful. And we have to do that by modeling uh, interdependence. But uh, let me just get off my high horse and say that is absolutely how RJ is winning. RJ is a team. He understands his deficits due to uh, organic brain damage. And he is compensating by having a team who is helping him. But there are things he is really good at. And that's why I was mentioning, okay, so you get uh, social assistance, uh, you know, your your son helps you, this person helps you do this, this person helps you travel, this person helps you get groceries, uh, but you are still able to travel the country and speak and run this successful uh, Facebook group. That is success. So it depends on what way you're looking at it. You could look at it, like I said, as a failure, or you could look at it as 100% success. And that's really the lens that I'm hoping you can have uh, with your loved ones, uh, students, clients, anybody you're working with on the spectrum is see the success first and let's figure out how to accommodate. But I, I totally know that one of the hardest things about this is getting the person to buy in if they don't believe or feel or think that they need help. And if you're an individual on the spectrum and you're listening to this, Getting help just works. It it doesn't make you less of a person. Um, I practice interdependence uh, every day of my life, and my career totally took off because of it. I have a, I have a huge team. I have a huge team um, because none of this would occur if I didn't have help either. So inter interdependence is so important in the way we look at success. And uh, a lot of our guys are so successful because of the difficulties they organically have to deal with every single day and how they can make it through a day. And especially at a time like this, again, if you're listening to this uh, later on, this is during the COVID-19 uh, you know, pandemic and everybody's shut in and everybody is just trying to do their best. The last thing I want to say is go easy on yourself. There is no playbook for this. There are no rules for this. So if you're overwhelmed about homeschooling, about work, about job, about finances, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. Just lower the expectations. Change the expectations. Make sure your mental health is the number one priority so that your kids are strong and you're as strong that when you get out of this because it's so important that we need you. Uh, so please be gentle. There are, again, no instructions on how to handle or manage this. So you do your best and don't let anybody feel like you're not a good parent because it's hard and it's different. And while you get used to your new normal, just be patient with yourself. Be patient with your kids. I think you're freaking awesome. Keep up the good work. I love you and we will see you next week.